The plan for today is to look at the ordinance of baptism. Next Sunday, Aaron Downs will be with us. Aaron is the pastor of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, one of our partnering pillar churches, and I'm really excited for you to meet Aaron. He's a sweet guy. He loves the Lord, and he's a great preacher, and so I'm excited to have him in with us next Sunday. Then the last Sunday of May, we will look at the ordinance of communion. So that's where we're going here in the next few weeks, and I'm excited for all of these opportunities for us to be together, learn from the Word, hear from the Lord through preaching and singing and worship and all those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm wound up. I'm ready to go. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. So before we get into some texts and some things about baptism, would you bow your heads and pray with me? And we'll begin. Father in heaven, we come and we are humbled by the fact that you have not immediately destroyed us in our sin, but have extended grace so that we can have the confidence when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as we consider your patience, Lord, that does not chide us or, or keep your anger forever, as Psalm 103 says, I just pray that that consideration would lead us to humble worship. That we would have an understanding that you as almighty God have a standard of holiness and every one of us has transgressed that standard and yet because of Christ and the sacrifice of his own body on the cross we can be restored and brought back into relationship with you. So Father, my heart is full this morning of your goodness and your faithfulness and the testimony that each one of us can look back on and say, here is where the Lord carried us. So as we now have the privilege of looking over the next weeks at the ordinances that you have given to the church of baptism and the Lord's Supper, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged, that we would be strengthened to see these pictures of the redemption you have purchased through Christ and that our affections for you, our love for you, would be raised and heightened as a result of our time together. So Father, please come by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, minister to our hearts, and would Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that I pray, amen. I want to start this morning by giving you a little bit of context and background to both communion and baptism. So we call them here ordinances. Some church call these sacraments. Maybe you grew up in a church or you've been to a church that refers to these as sacraments. Now there is a reason why at Grace Bible Church we say the ordinance of baptism or the ordinance of communion. I want to explain this because I think it will be helpful as you think about these things. When the New Testament was translated into Latin from the original Greek manuscripts, the translators in the church at the time translated the word for mystery as sacramentum. It's a Latin word for mystery. And that word started to be associated with the communion table and with the baptism because as they looked at what was going on, they said, okay, there's, there's some kind of something mysterious kind of going on, right? There's the, the table and the, 
the representation of the body and the blood, and then baptism being united to Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. And so they translated this word sacramentum, meaning something mysterious or a mystery that was going on. Now, by the 5th century, Augustine came up with, you know who Augustine is, one of the patristic church fathers? He comes up with this definition of what a sacrament is. And this maybe is familiar to you as well. He called a sacrament an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. And we would hear that and say, yeah, that's right. Where nothing actually is happening in the table, it's a sign of what has happened, right? And say, we'll get into this all as we go on. But that became a widely accepted definition of the sacraments, the sacramentum, this mystery of coming to the table or participating in baptism. Now, as the church developed and Roman Catholicism comes into its own and starts to kind of take over ecclesiology, this word took on more significance than it should have. So as they looked at the translations in the Latin of this word sacramentum and kind of the mysterious nature around this, they started to put an inordinate amount of emphasis or uh, significance on these activities, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And they started to see them not just as a sign of what had happened, but as the cause of something that could happen. Okay, in refers to baptism, we would call this baptismal regeneration, meaning you are saved by being baptized. Now, part of the reason that this went on so long is because no one had access to the word, only the priests. So as they made these translation decisions and they put these emphasis on things, nobody could refute it because no one had access to a Latin scriptures or even spoke Latin for that matter, for a large part of it. So around the time of the Protestant Reformation, the, they, they get the Bible translated into the language of the people. German, uh, Martin Luther's translation efforts. William Tyndale works on getting the Bible into the hands of the people. And what happens is they start to look, the churches start to look at this, what really is an abuse of the, of the ordinances. And they say, wait a minute. This isn't right. This is not what the scriptures teach. And so the Protestant churches say, we don't want anything to do with what the Catholic Church is doing. It's wrong, it's not biblical, and they break. This is kind of the, one of the things of the Reformation was the way that the ordinances were treated. So, in church tradition, this word sacrament had taken on a meaning that actually gave it an effectiveness. Does that make sense? So when we say ordinance, what we mean and what the Protestant reformers meant was that it's not something that is effectual as in you'll say you're saved if you are baptized, but they considered it an ordinance, meaning it is something that Jesus Christ ordained or commanded to the church. You see the difference? So at Grace Bible Church, we call the Lord's Supper and we call baptism an ordinance because it is something that Jesus Christ ordained or commanded to the church. So again, if, if you're hung up on the word sacrament, or that's how you grew up, but you have a right understanding of what they actually mean, you're not going to get kicked out of the church or whatever. I'm just telling you why we refer to it the way we refer to it. I wanted to have us a little background before we get into it this morning. So, with that brief history of terms, let's get into some texts and let's start talking about the ordinance of baptism this morning. What I want to do is give you four things 
that baptism is. And after we talk through those things, I'm going to answer a few commonly asked questions that usually come up in the conversation about baptism. Sound good? Let's do it. Four things. Number one, baptism is a response to saving faith, not the cause of saving faith. Baptism is a response to saving faith, not the cause of saving faith. Here's what I mean. In the New Testament, the examples that we see of people being baptized always come after a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. Nowhere in the apostolic writing, in the narrative parts of the New Testament, do we see teaching, uh, instruction, or even examples of people being baptized apart from a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, let me give you a couple examples. Acts chapter 2. After the coming of Holy Spirit at Pentecost, all the Jewish leaders and the men gathered around. They had no idea why they were all hearing the different languages going on and the gospel being preached. And Peter gets up and gives this tremendous sermon. Acts chapter 2. You should read it. It's worth the read. Okay, so they're wondering what's going on. And Peter says, look, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified... God has made both Lord and Christ. And he gives testimony to the fact that Jesus was truly the Messiah. And starting back at the prophet Joel, Peter takes them through the history of redemption and tells them how the Messiah came and was rejected by his people and crucified but rose from the dead. And he just lays the gospel out. And as these men hear the gospel being preached, they're cut to the heart, the book of Acts says. And they ask Peter, what are we supposed to do? And so Peter, in answer to their question, says this. This is Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So first comes repentance. They heard the word. They were, the Holy Spirit works through the word and convicts them of their sin. They say, what are we going to do? Peter says, repent of your sin and be baptized. The order is very important here. And we read, this is exactly what happened. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So do you see the progression? Peter preaches the gospel. They hear the word. The Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin. They say, what are we supposed to do? Peter says, repent. Receive the gift of salvation. And subsequently be baptized. Another example, Acts chapter 18. Paul is in Corinth, preaching the gospel to the Corinthians. And we read this in Acts 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Believed and were baptized. Believed and were baptized. You, you getting it? You seeing what's going on here? Now some people will say, well, that says all of his household. They were, so that means, that means everyone. We should, we should do this to the babies and to everything. And if you say, okay, well, all of his household, but what does it say the household did before anyone was baptized? They believed. So even if there were younger people, whatever, I do not see this as a, as a pillar text for infant baptism. And I'd love to talk more about that with you. We'll get into that a little bit later. There's a lot of other New Testament texts that give evidence to the fact that the normative 
pattern, the biblical pattern is to hear the gospel, repent of your sin, confess Christ, and after that, be baptized. But there's also the matter of the theology of the thing, the doctrine. Okay, we have biblical evidence, but what happens if we start to say, okay, this, you have to do this to be saved. You're not saved unless you do this. What is that called? Works. If anyone, this is what David was just talking about in Philippians, where the people were trying to add something to faith in Christ. Whether it be circumcision, baptism, dietary requirements, observing certain festivals, whatever. The Bible is so crystal clear that salvation is by faith through works. No, right? I hope you're listening. Salvation is by grace through faith and that in Jesus Christ. So it does not work to say, okay, we believe in the Bible, however, we're going to say that this is going to happen over here and we're going to have baptismal regeneration. It does not work. Baptism is a response to saving faith. It is not the cause of saving faith according to the testimony of the Scriptures. Second, Baptism expresses union with Christ. Baptism expresses union with Christ. When a person is united to Jesus Christ by faith, which is a way of saying saved, that's what happens when you get saved. You are united to Jesus Christ. And when that happens, everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of you. Okay, it's a really basic definition of what union with Christ means. So then... When we read things like, turn to Romans chapter 6 with me, the beginning of Romans chapter 6. When we read this section, the point of Paul telling us what he's about to tell us is for us to understand that if you are united to Jesus, what happens to him happens to you. And there is so much implication there. Read with me Romans chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. And remember, we're under the context of baptism expressing or dramatizing, maybe that's a better word, union with Christ. Listen to Paul's words. This is Romans 6, starting verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's the reality of union. You see that? Just as Christ, fill in the blank, so we fill in the same blank. Okay, that's the definition. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, Christian, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that in the act of baptism, there is this symbolism 
this telling of a story that just as Christ Jesus died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, so we are to die to sin, we're buried with him in that, and will be raised to walk in newness of life, which is what he says in verse 4. This is the glorious reality that is true for every person who has faith in Jesus. No faith in Jesus, no union, no precious reality. It is only by united to Jesus through faith that we can have this precious reality. If you are a Christian, Paul says, you should consider yourself. I think the King James uses the word reckon. That's a great word. I want everybody to try to use that word this week. You should reckon yourself dead to sin. And what that means is that you should think about yourself as if you were. That's what the word reckon means. Or consider in the ESV. Think about yourself as if you are dead to sin. A person who is dead does not struggle with sin because there's no anything to promote it. You know what I'm saying? A dead person doesn't struggle with lust. A dead person doesn't struggle with pride and arrogance and selfishness. They're dead. Now, I don't mean to say that if you are a Christian, you'll never struggle with any sin. That's ridiculous and it's anti-biblical. The point Paul is making is not, okay, you're a Christian, you're done with sin, congratulations. The point he's making is that you ought to think about yourself as if you were dead to sin. Sin no longer has a hold on you. And baptism is the thing that illustrates this reality. You go under the water in burial. You're raised up out of the water as a beautiful picture of what has happened to you spiritually. Baptism expresses and dramatizes our union with Christ. Number three. Baptism is to be done by immersion. Baptism is to be done by immersion. Here we're getting into the conversation about mode, M-O-D-E, mode. How to baptize somebody. And in this conversation, there's generally two ways of looking at it. You either baptize by immersion or you baptize by sprinkling on the head, okay? I have two main reasons for being a Baptist. That is somebody who believes in full immersion, Baptizing someone who has made a confession of faith. The two reasons would be because of the symbolism, which we just mentioned a little bit, I'll get more into that, and because of the biblical evidence, which trumps symbolism. But we'll start with the symbolism, okay? So here's my reasons for saying I believe this to be the correct way, the correct mode to observe the ordinance of baptism. First, symbolism. We just read in Romans 6 about dying, being buried, and being raised with Christ. Okay? When we practice baptism by immersion, we rehearse all three of those very important elements in your salvation. Going under the water symbolizes death and burial. And coming up out of the water symbolizes what Paul says in Romans 6 as being raised to walk in newness of life. Double meaning there. It also just like he says in Romans 6, gives us hope of a future resurrection. So just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so everyone who is united to Jesus by faith will one day 
be raised to a new life. So there's all kinds of stuff tied up in this. Sometimes when I baptize people, I will say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, buried with him in death, then we raise them up, raised to walk in newness of life. It's just such a beautiful picture. And the people who practice baptism by sprinkling are missing an opportunity. An opportunity to see what has happened to you. What God has done by his sovereign, effectual grace in your life. You're missing it. But in addition to the symbolism and much more compelling is the reason of the biblical evidence. These would be things that David Mathis calls the stubborn exegetical evidence. Texts that you cannot get around in the Bible when you talk about this discussion. The word that the Bible uses, baptizo, means to immerse, to dunk, to get under the water. So there's a linguistic cause, but also the evidence that when we read in the New Testament about people being baptized, there is always this evidence that there was a lot of water around. Let me just give you a couple examples. And maybe you've heard these. It's good to rehearse. Acts chapter 8. Brett Tony just preached on this several weeks ago here. Philip is sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember this? He's reading the scroll of Isaiah from Isaiah 53. Philip gets up in the chariot with him and starting with Isaiah 53, lays out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wonderful picture of evangelism. We read this. This is Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Hang on, before we move on. Philip's articulation of the gospel, his evangelism included baptism. Interesting note. As we preach the gospel, we must preach the baptism that follows. Anyways, verse 38. So the unit commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and he baptized him. There would be no need to go down into the water if he just needed a little bit to sprinkle on him. He could have done that right in the chariot, but that's not the mode. The example is that he was baptized by immersion. John the Baptist set up shop near Anon in Salem because there was plentiful water there, it says in John 3, 23, and people were coming and being baptized by John the Baptist. Finally, Jesus himself is baptized in the Jordan River. And we read, if you read this in Matthew chapter 3, that after he was baptized, Jesus came up out of the water. And you remember this? The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove, and God says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay, so there's the evidence there, but also, why did Jesus get baptized? I mean, Jesus was without sin. He was the perfect Son of God, fully God, fully man. Why did he need to get baptized? Why did he tell John he needed to be baptized? Do you remember this? He comes to John to be baptized. And John says, whoa, wait a minute. You should be baptizing me because John knew who Jesus was. And Jesus says, John, it is fitting that we fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was leaving an example for us to follow in his steps. He was demonstrating his perfect obedience. And part of that is being baptized. 
So both because of the rich symbolism that we have in baptizing by immersion and because of the biblical evidence, I personally and the doctrine of our church at Grace Bible Church is we are convinced that baptism should be done by immersion as obedience to the scriptures. Fourth, and finally, baptism is to be done in the name of the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You might not consider the Great Commission text to be primarily a text on baptism, but there are several really helpful, really uh, good things for us to see when Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go out and preach the gospel. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28. We could probably say the text together. I hope it's a familiar text to you, but if not, that's okay. Matthew chapter 28, follow along. I'm going to start in verse 19. Jesus has just told his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and he says this in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is why we call baptism an ordinance, because Jesus ordained it. He commanded it to his disciples and said, as the gospel spreads, as you now, you men, take this message and plant churches and go out and preach the gospel, here is what you ought to do. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and do this until I come back, till the end of the age. That's the implication there. There's not like this set period that we're supposed to be baptizing and observing this. This goes on until Jesus comes back. So does the table. This is the ordinance that we have been given in the church. But we also see here that disciples of Jesus are to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why do you think that is significant? Why would Jesus include that? Or I could say it this way, what would be missing if he hadn't said that? Maybe that's a good way to think about it. Why do this in the name of the triune God? I think we need to back up for a moment and remember what it is that is being signified in baptism. It demonstrates a death to sin. It demonstrates being united to Christ. Those who were once far off, separated from God, alienated from God because of our sin, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There is a uniting together, a knitting together, if you will, of God's people between him and God. And I believe that God set things up this way to help us understand the unity that exists even between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're commanded to baptize, I think, in the name of all three because it is a reminder for us that all three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are involved in the redemption of God's people. All of them. The Father elects and predestines the people that, he, that will save. Jesus purchases the salvation of those people by his own blood and the Holy Spirit works through the word and the preaching of the gospel and applies that truth to the heart of people. 
So when we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's not just some kind of ritual church history type thing that we're doing. That is a declaration that your salvation is Trinitarian, that it involves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are being united to him through faith in your salvation, and the baptism that follows simply demonstrates that union. Therefore, Jesus commands that we baptize in the name of the triune God. So what have we seen so far? Baptism is a response to saving faith. It is not the cause of saving faith. It expresses union with Christ. It's done by immersion in water. And it is to be done in the name of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now let me answer a few questions that come up almost every time in a conversation like this and see if you can answer them before I do just based on what we've seen here so far who should be baptized who should be baptized those who have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ a visible public profession of faith in the Lord Jesus someone says well I'm a Christian why should I be baptized I've had that question before. Why, why should I be baptized? To publicly display the union that you have with Jesus Christ and to declare to those around you and to the world that you belong to Jesus. You have a new king. You have a new constitution that you follow. It's a public declaration. Another question that I get if I was baptized as an infant and have since come to faith in Jesus Christ, should I be baptized again? What would you say? You want to switch places real quick? Well, what did we just see? There's a reason I didn't ask these first and I wanted to ask these last because of what we just saw from the text, right? Baptism follows a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So I would say, if you were baptized as a baby, and since now into your uh, teen or adult life or whatever, you've come to faith in Jesus, then yes, you should follow the Lord in baptism. Another question. This is the last one. What is the relationship between baptism and the local church? Or baptism and membership? Here at Grace Bible Church, for everyone who comes in as a member, we require that you have been baptized. Why would we do that? That sounds kind of like rules and regulations. Ick. Well, here's why. When a church affirms new members, when we bring people in, what exactly are we affirming? We're not bringing people into membership and saying, oh, well, these people are really gifted. They can really serve the church. We want to affirm their gifts. Nope. We're not saying, well, their personality is really kind. We need some more kind people around here. We're going, nope, that's not it. What are we affirming? We are affirming a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And baptism is just one of the tools, one of the helps that God has given to his church to affirm and to demonstrate the fact that the person has received the grace of God, come into the family of God, has been adopted by his father as a son. So we require baptism because, for one thing, if you're a Christian, there is no reason why you shouldn't be baptized. Do you know that? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus has washed you clean of your sin. There is no reason to put off being baptized. 
Jesus commanded it. You ought to follow your king and be baptized. Now, I want to close with an encouragement. It has three different parts. Three different audiences, perhaps. First, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have been baptized, I want to encourage you to look back often at that time and let it remind you of the grace of God. (laughs) One of the points of baptism is to publicly demonstrate what has happened as a result of God's mercy and his kindness and his grace towards you. So I just encourage you, look back on that and let it produce thankfulness and love in your heart for God. Second, if you are a believer and you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. You need to follow the Lord Jesus in obedience and out of faithfulness to his word, you need to be baptized. And you can do that. There's a baptismal right here. and We've used it before several times. We will fill that up whenever we need to. If you have not been baptized and you want to know more, you want to learn more, you want to get stuff straight, please talk to me or any of the elders. We would love to have that conversation with you. Third and finally, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, if you don't have confidence that your sins are forgiven that the weight and the burden of carrying that sin can be lifted off. If you don't know that freedom, you can know that today. You can know that right now. You hear me talking about baptism and union with Christ and benefits and effects and all this kind of stuff. Maybe you say, I, I want that, but I don't know how to get it. You're asking exactly the right question. It's the same question that the men asked Peter in Acts 2. What? must we do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And you can follow him in baptism and you can have the rich significance of identifying with him. So I just encourage you, hear the call of the gospel. I can't save you. I have nothing to save you with, but I can introduce you to the one who can save you, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the only one who can forgive sin. He's the only one who can cleanse you from unrighteousness. So I encourage you, hear the gospel call, repent, turn of your sin and come to Jesus for cleansing, for renewal and for newness of life. I hope that you do that today. Let's pray as we close. Father in heaven, thank you for this rich, ordinance that you have given us. Thank you, Father, that we can look to your word and receive instruction and help, that we don't have to wonder what you expect of us, but we can have very clear evidences, Lord, that what you desire is that all men come to a knowledge of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and that once we have been saved from our sin and forgiven of all our trespasses, we follow you in obedience by being baptized to publicly demonstrate the union that we have with you. So Father, for every heart here, for the believer, for the unbeliever, use your word now and through your spirit convict of sin and bring about repentance. Encourage the hearts of those who trust in you 
And would we all, Lord, leave here with a greater level of confidence of your love and your plan of redemption for your people. Thank you for this time and thank you for your word. And I pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.